Hello, and welcome to the Space Weather Facts and Forecast podcast. I'm Isaac Brigman, amateur space weather enthusiast, and I'll be giving you the current space weather conditions, the forecast for the upcoming week, telling you all about a fascinating space weather phenomena. Stay tuned. The space weather the past week has been crazy. For the past week or so, we have had solar flares left and right. Literally, left and right, not towards Earth. First of all, Sunspot Region 3110 was quiet as it faced Earth a couple weeks ago, but it underwent growth when it was exiting the Earth's strike zone and began majorly flaring. It even managed to give us our first X-flare since May. A lot of its eruptions were kind of on the hairy edge of facing Earth, but the CMEs launched were all directed up and away from us. Then we had Region 3112 joining the party on the east limb. As soon as it began making its way onto the solar disk, and even before, it was firing out plenty of M-flares. This region had so much promise. It was not yet, but going to face Earth, and had a very complex beta-gamma-delta magnetic layout, and was active flare-wise. But yet, surprisingly, it has managed to quiet down and mostly stay that way while facing Earth. One possibility could be that this is the calm before the storm, so to speak, and it's storing up its energy for a large flare. But more likely is the possibility that it's simply slowly decaying and unwinding, and no more noteworthy flares are to be expected from it. Now a third region that has been minorly contributing to flaring is region 3116. It's located just north of 3112, and doesn't seem to be a complex region. Despite that, it managed to explode yesterday with a long-duration M1 event. When this flare happened, the region was almost perfectly facing Earth. And usually, a long-duration M flare is the perfect candidate to launch a CME. But yet, when coronagraph data was checked, no CME was to be found. Earth seems to have made yet another dodge. Finally, two filament eruptions occurred recently, both producing CMEs. The first one was supposed to graze Earth yesterday, or two days ago, but it seems as if it was a complete miss. The second was launched just before yesterday's flare, and also produced a CME, and this one too is on the edge of hitting Earth. I think it's not totally impossible that we will see a glancing blow from this one, maybe on or around Monday, but it could very well miss us completely. Now as to the solar forecast, I expect the sun to be mostly quiet in the upcoming days. However, I cannot rule out the possibility of Region 3112 returning to life, which could again throw M or even X flares at us. All the other numbered regions are mostly small and stable, with the exception of active Region 3119, which grew in the last day. I don't foresee any notable flares from this sunspot, however. As to coronal holes, there really are none of note on the Earth-facing disk. More should be appearing around the east limb soon, though, so long as they have survived their far side transit. The current geomagnetic conditions are unsettled to active. We're only at a KP3, but the solar wind data is for the most part decent, and the BZ is mostly south, making for a hemispheric power of around 40 gigawatts in both the north and the south. I think that these slightly enhanced conditions will likely begin to wane in the next day or two, and the only foreseeable disturbance would be the previously mentioned second filament eruption CME, 
which could graze us after the weekend. However, I really only expect that to get us up to maybe a KP4 if it does not entirely miss us, as all of last week's numerous CMEs have. So if you're an Aurora watcher at high latitudes, stay alert, we might still have pockets of activity coming. For lower latitudes, well, the chances do seem pretty slim, but if you're in a location where the Aurora Oval dips south, like especially in the Canadian prairies, keep an eye on the data, as even a KP4 might let you see a show. Thanks for listening to the forecast. Now it's time to talk about this week's featured space weather phenomena. The solar wind is the one main factor responsible for so many space weather-related phenomena on Earth, especially the aurora. But where does it come from, or what even is it? These are some of the questions that I will answer in this podcast. The solar wind is essentially the outermost layer of the solar corona, which is sort of like the sun's atmosphere, radiating out into space. This outer layer of the corona is not close enough to the sun to be bound by gravity, and so it is pushed out and away as new gas wells up from the sun into the lower corona. The first person to hint at the existence of the solar wind was Richard C. Carrington in 1859. He had just observed the first recorded solar flare, and a day later, powerful geomagnetic storming began at Earth. Carrington was the first to suspect a connection. In 1910, astrophysicist Arthur Eddington was the first to more formally propose the solar wind, guessing that it was made up of ions, and this is in fact mostly true. Composition of the solar wind is mainly ionized hydrogen, with smaller amounts of helium and trace amounts of other heavy atomic nuclei and ions. The solar wind is technically a plasma, meaning that the nuclei and electrons of atoms have been separated by the heat of the corona. It's not actually a gas, which the word wind might often bring to mind. The average speed of the solar wind as it leaves the sun, and this is still similar when it reaches Earth, is about 400 kilometers per second, or roughly 1 million miles per hour. The cause of the acceleration to such speeds are not fully understood, but it is known that some of the speed comes from heat in the corona. Many variations in this speed can occur, though. For example, the solar wind from coronal holes is often much faster, up to 800 kilometers per second or more. But if you want to learn more about this topic of coronal holes, you can go back and listen to episode 3, where I give a much more detailed explanation. In 1997, the spacecraft ACE, stands for Advanced Composition Explorer, was launched and put into orbit around the L1 point between the Sun and the Earth. That's a point where the satellite can remain in line with the Sun and the Earth. It was launched to take measurements of the solar wind in a spot just upstream of Earth. This has helped scientists know, with about an hour's warning, what solar wind features are headed for Earth. ACE, which has now been replaced by DISCOVER, stands for Deep Space Climate Observatory, take near real-time measurements of the solar wind ahead of Earth. So I'll try to explain briefly each measurement. They are solar wind speed, density, interplanetary magnetic field, or IMF, strength, and IMF direction. There are also a couple of other measurements, like temperature and angle of the IMF, but as these have less of an effect on Earth and on Aurora, I won't be going into them too much. First, the solar wind speed is pretty self-explanatory. It's just the speed at which the particles making up the wind are traveling. 
The higher the solar wind speed, the easier a geomagnetic storm can be sparked, and the better it is for aurora. Think of it like this. With a higher speed, particles can penetrate better into the Earth's atmosphere, creating aurora. Next, the density of the solar wind, measured in particles per centimeter cubed, is simply how many particles are present in each centimeter cubed of space. Usually if the density is high, meaning above roughly 20 particles per centimeter cubed, it's better for aurora, as there is simply more particles interacting in the atmosphere, creating light. Now the next major observation is the strength and direction of the IMF. The IMF is essentially the sun's magnetic field carried out into space by the solar wind. It's present everywhere in the solar wind. Discover measures the total strength of the IMF, or BT, T's for total, in nanoteslas, as well as the strength in specific directions. Now space is 3D, and so the strength of the IMF is measured on each of the three axes, X, Y, and Z, resulting in three measurements, the BX, BY, and BZ. However, as the z-axis is the one oriented in the same way as Earth's magnetic field, meaning north-south, the bz is by far the most impactful measurement on Earth. The bz is such an important measurement that it can make or break the aurora, even if the other data is very strong. I like to think of it like this. Imagine two bar magnets. When you put them together with the same poles touching, like north-to-north -north and south-to-south, -south, they repel. But if you flip one of the magnets, they attract. Now Earth's magnetic field points north. So when the BZ also points north, or up on the z-axis, Earth's magnetic field repels the solar wind. When the BZ points south, however, the solar wind is attracted to Earth and can penetrate the atmosphere, creating brilliant auroras. All the solar wind data works together to create geomagnetic storming and the aurora. If more measurements are all strong at the same time, our magnetic field will become more raggled, leading to stronger storming. If only one or two values are strong, though, the odds of a storm greatly go down. It's worth noting, however, that often, not always, but often, when one aspect is strong, the others will be too, as the solar wind tends to generally enhance all at once, not piecemeal, and this is especially true of CMEs, large plasma ejections from the sun, which, if they arrive at Earth, often bring strong solar wind conditions and geomagnetic storming. So if you're heading out to see the aurora, it's generally wise to check all the data, and especially to keep an eye on that BZ, which can turn on a dime and can push the lights up towards the poles or pull them down to lower latitudes. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe and share it. This podcast will be available on the second Saturday of every month on major podcast platforms. See you next time.